Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Listen, welcome to the Jesus Project 2020. I am so excited. Pastor Keith and I both are so excited about the year we have ahead of us as we journey in the Gospel of Luke. And so I want to encourage you to bring your Jesus Project books with you to our weekend gatherings. If you don't have one yet, our ushers have them at the door and they'll get them to you because we're going to help you with page numbers, tell you which ones to highlight, which words to maybe circle, which verses will be critical. So you can make sure you bring it to your weekend gathering and then and take it to the community groups with you. So with the community groups, you can unpack the weekend teaching in a group setting. It's going to be really great. Glad you're here. And if you're online, jump into the chat room right now, and Pastor Matt will get you to a digital kind of way to get access our notes. So you can do that online by just jumping in the chat room. So where are we going to go today? Well, we're going to look at the early years of Jesus. In the month of December, we, we covered uh, Luke chapter 1. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your Jesus Project book, turn to page 22, if you would. 22 in your book. Because what we're trying to do is lead into a series where we want to help you grow up. That's the name of this series right now. Grow up. We all need to mature in areas of our life. And we thought, who better to help us mature? Who's a better life coach than Jesus? So we're going to invite him to be our life coach during this season. This is the guiding truth and maybe even the first thing you write in that Jesus Project journal. If you want to write this, and I'd love you to say it out loud with me. This is a truth I hope you anchor throughout 2020 as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Let's say it out loud together, could you? Jesus is not just our Savior, he is our example. Now, why I say that is we talk a lot about God being our Savior, forgiver, and redeemer, and rightfully so. As Jesus' name is lifted up, as he is exalted, as rightfully our Savior, the one who has made us be able to reestablish a relationship with God the Father, it's essential. But I want you to understand that all the other stories about Jesus in the New Testament, all his teachings, all his interactions, they're not anecdotal background for the fact that he's your savior. It's to show us him as our example. He's our example. So we look at what Jesus taught, who he valued, his, his priorities, uh, his interactions, how he used his resources in this life, all of that is what we're supposed to embody as followers of Jesus. So he is our example. So I'm going to cover 30 years of Jesus' life today. And then we're going to spend the rest of the year unpacking the last three years of Jesus' life. But we're going to cover 30 years. If you've got your Bible or if you've got your Jesus Project book, page 22, 23 is where your notes will be. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Here's what it says. The child grew, and this is after the nativity scene, and he's gone back to Nazareth. It says this, the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. The key word here is this little verb, grew, because it speaks to time. Basically, the passage is saying, time 
past, and it speaks to a process of preparation. Jesus is being prepared for the last three years of his life. So there's time that passes and a preparation that takes place. It's process time. Now, this is countercultural right now. You notice this. In our culture, we're an instant culture, aren't we? I mean, if I took you to the pharmacy after this and you're in pain, and you had the choice between two pain medications, one's fast-acting pain medication, and one is instant pain medic relief. Wouldn't you want the instant? We won't have, nobody has time for fast-acting in our culture. You know, we make all kinds of decisions around that word instant. Some of you make all your food choices around the word instant. It doesn't matter how it even tastes. It's about the immediacy of it. So you can have your instant coffee while you're making your meal in your Instapot, and then you can Instagram it, and then you can post it. We want things instantly, but transformation does not happen instantly. Now, here's where we struggle with it. We believe as a church, as a Pentecostal church, we believe that God can instantly heal people. God can change people. God can set people free from addictions. But, but here you won't find in the Bible, nobody instantly becomes like Jesus overnight. Instead, you become like Jesus one single day at a time. One single day at a time. And theologians call it sanctification. It's the process of becoming like Jesus. And when you choose to follow Jesus and you, you put your trust in him and you're baptized in water, you just begin the path of becoming like Jesus and it won't end until our lives end here and we're perfected in heaven eventually. But we'll, it will never end. We're always in the process of becoming. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52, there's where we're going to be today. Let me tell you why this passage is so cool. It's unique. You'll never, you, in the Gospels, there's four Gospels. We'll talk about that in our community groups this week. But this story is only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. It's the only time we have an account of Jesus where he's not a baby or a man. He's a boy. He's a 12-year-old boy here in this passage. It's very unique. That means that to this date, when you get to Luke chapter 3, the very next chapter in the Gospel of Luke, he's already 30 years old. 10,500 days of his life have already passed, almost in obscurity. The only time we get even a glimpse of him in that 10,500 days is at his birth moment and at this moment. The last three years of his life, about a thousand days, it's well documented. Because the Gospels are not biographies. They are overviews of the life and ministry of Jesus and his teaching. So, but this is a unique insight, very unique well, uh, passage of scripture. Because we don't know a lot about Jesus' early life. Now, I need to tell you though, Pastor Keith, that didn't stop Pastor Keith and I. Last, last spring, we were in Israel and we went looking we went looking from early evidence of the life of Jesus in Nazareth. And I want you to know, we found stuff that no other person has ever found. We found stuff that the archaeologists, none of them were able to find what we found. You know what we found? We found Jesus' actual house. And actually, I got a picture of Keith standing out in front of it. How many believe that? Uh, okay, okay, maybe not his house, but we found the actual school and, and Keith was running around in the gym there. That he went from JK to grade four in this school. You, you believe me? What about the school bus we found that he went to school in? 
And we don't have any of these sites. Nobody knows. And I'm kind of glad they don't. Because we would take whatever we find and we'd venerate it. Not him, but it. But we do actually get a glimpse into what Nazareth was like. If you go to modern day Nazareth, it's a bustling city. But it wasn't in Jesus' day. Between 50 and 100 people he would have been raised in, around. And in fact, uh, if you go there, and some of you have been there, there's a reenactment village that kind of gives a picture of what it was like to live in Nazareth when Jesus was a boy. In fact, Pastor Keith is going to show us. So although we know little or nothing from the first 30 years of Jesus' life, we also uh, can, with history and archaeology, with that help, we can go back and recreate the village of Nazareth. That's exactly what has been done here. And so we can look at a house as it would have appeared in Jesus' time, built with wooden beams, basalt stones, a thatched roof. The floor was made of packed earth. We can know about the agriculture of Jesus' time, how they would grind their grain. Uh, Jesus used illustrations of plants and trees, fig tree, mustard seed. Remember he talked about weeds and thorns in his illustrations? For clothing, they'd wear uh, a cloak and a tunic that would be spun from wool uh, taken from the sheep. Uh, transportation, well, that was basically food and the occasional donkey. Uh, what did they eat? You know, lentils, grains, fruits, olives, grapes, honey, butter, cheese, yogurt, fish, poultry, lamb, wild game, a lot of herbs like mint, dill, cumin, onions, garlic. So they, they, had, they had quite a good menu to eat. So Jesus was raised in this small village in a region of Israel that was very obscure uh, among people that he would have known his whole life. And it's interesting when you pick it up in verse 41 and uh, that he's 12 years old. This was lost on me for many years and I just thought about it this week. You know, Jesus was going through puberty at this time. Can you imagine that? Jesus went through puberty for you. I don't know if he had acne. We don't know. Okay, here we go. Verse 41. You ready? Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. So in your Jesus book, uh, just circle every year and circle as usual. Those are key words and key phrases that speak to the habits and routines and the predictability of the family that Jesus was raised in. They had habits, routines that were predictable. Every year they went to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And this was no easy trek. That was 153 kilometers away. Approximately, that's almost the exact distance between Agincourt and Niagara Falls. In our modern years, that's not a big diff, di, uh, distance, but when was the last time you walked that? And it was not easy. It would take them about approximately five days to make this journey. Joseph would have to suspend because he was self-employed businessman, and you'll hear more about that next week, in construction, uh, a carpenter. So Joseph would have to suspend his income during that season, so he would be preparing and saving up every year for the same journey, five-day journey to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And Mary and Joseph, by the time Jesus was 12, they had other children. 
So you got to know if you're a parent, you know what it's like when you have to go with your kids somewhere? You like pack up half the house to take with you. This was no easy journey. Mary would have had to get all the kids together and Joseph getting all the things and the village would travel together. They were small enough and there was safety in it. There was also a way of taking care of each other by traveling together. So they would have done that. This was their habit, their discipline. Don't miss this. Jesus' destiny is discovered by him in the daily discipline. It's the daily disciplines that Jesus discovers his destiny. We often think the destiny is going to be discovered in these kind of great revelatory moments. But you're going to see in a moment, Jesus actually discovers who he is and what he's going to do in the middle of a habit and a routine and a predictable pattern. You see, life is made up of two things. Life is made up of inspirational moments, and thank God for them. Inspirational moments are those moments that kind of fuel you. But, but our culture, and you need to remember this, our culture has become addicted to inspirational moments. We need it on our social media. We need every pastor to inspire us. We need inspiration, inspiration, inspiration. But the problem is, is and inspiration is needed, but inspiration won't transform your life. Transformation actually happens in intentional routines. It's intentional routines. Here's where people go into spiritual lives that are up and down, up and down, up and down. They ask inspirational moments to do what only intentional routines can do. Or vice versa. They're asking intentional routines what inspirational moments need to do. I don't know where you lean. Let me give you an illustration. Let's imagine you are a car. <laughs> Inspirational moments is the fuel. It's gas. It keeps you going. It's the people that come alongside you when you feel like giving up and they say, hey, keep on going. Don't give up. And you get inspired to keep going. Or you hear a message or you sing a song or you, you get a little video of a kid, a baby laughing and it makes your day. I don't know what you do to inspire yourself, but it kind of gives you that little extra. Let's keep going. But those are not the things that transform you. And this is why a lot of people have this spirituality is like this. It's intentional routines. So if gasoline is the inspirational moments, intentional routines is the maintenance. How valuable is gasoline if your starter won't work? How valuable is it if you're all out of line and you get about 20 kilometers per hour and your car is shaking so bad you can't go any further? Intentional routines take care of those maintenance issues so the inspirational moments can actually fuel us forward. And Jesus discovers his destiny in the intentional routines. Holy Spirit-inspired habits. You see, when you read the Gospel of Luke, you begin to see that Jesus had an incredible amount of daily routines. And it's beautiful because it actually lets us know. If you turn to page 36 of your Jesus Project book, you'll notice in, in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says this about Jesus. It says that when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as, can you say it with me, usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. You can see throughout the gospel of Luke, he would come away from the crowds to pray. It was a habit. It was a daily habit. He read the scriptures. He went to the synagogue. These were daily habits that revealed his destiny. Friends, I can tell you this about 2020. I can tell you about this. You will become 
And you will experience 2020 largely based on the little habits that you've produced and built into your life daily. Who you will become and what, how you will experience 2020 will be framed and experienced through your daily habits. So let's go back to our story. Imagine they're headed to Passover in Jerusalem. Jesus and his whole family, Joseph. Now, in the ancient Jewish culture, it was up to Joseph to spiritually educate the children. That was his job. There was a division of labor in the culture at that time. That was his job. So he would, every good Jewish father would, on the way to the Passover feast, he would pause somewhere along the road. He might do it before or just as they arrive in Jerusalem and explain to his kids what Passover meant. He'd explain to them that we, us, our people, were in captivity we were oppressed. We were, it, it was terrible circumstances and we were in slavery in Egypt and we cried out for a deliverer and God sent Moses. And Moses led us from captivity into the promised land. And then that good Jewish leader would also make the connection. He said, and then he'd say to his kids, and one day there's a Messiah coming and he will set us free from sin and death. I don't know. It doesn't say it in the text. But I wonder every time you get to that part in the story, I wonder if you avoided eye contact with Jesus. And then as he went on to talk about the sacrificial system, why were the lambs being sacrificed? He probably quoted from Leviticus in the Torah where it said there will be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And maybe Jesus as a little boy, every time he heard that, maybe there was a there was a pounding in his heart, he felt. We don't know these things. But we know that Joseph would be equipping his children to experience it. Then it goes on to say in verse 43. It says, after the celebration was over, so they've gone to Jerusalem, they've celebrated the Passover, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind. It should be noted, without permission and without asking. Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first. <laughs> and it sounds so negligent, but it's not negligent when you understand what would usually happen. When they journeyed as villages like that, often there was a division even in gender at that time. And so men would journey together and women would journey together. So it's likely that Mary thought Jesus was with Joseph. And Joseph thought Jesus was with Mary. They kind of traveled as companions and divided, divided among the genders. Now, this is one of the reasons we're doing the Gospel of Luke, and you'll hear this in your community groups. You know, one of the things I love about the Gospel of Luke is how Jesus broke down those gender barriers. Incredible. You have more interactions with women by Jesus and Luke than in all the rest of the Bible combined. It's pretty incredible what Jesus is, pretty radical. But that's another story for another day. So they're traveling back. They miss him. They can't find him. So it goes on to say this. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. Next slide. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem. Have you ever had to go back? You know, when you leave for work, you're about 15 minutes away and you realize I left my cell phone and you got to go back for it. Have you ever moved to another city and it was hours of driving and about two hours in the drive you realize you left the paperwork back at your previous house for the house you were purchasing in the new city you haven't done that me neither um it's just painful 
It's painful. It's agitating to have to go back. And they're forced into their journey to turn back to go to find Jesus. So it says, three days later, three days, a 12-year-old boy, gone. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. Friends, I, I don't want this to be lost on you in 2020. The Savior of the universe was sitting there and he was listening and asking questions. Does that not speak to his humility? Proud people don't ask questions. Proud people don't listen because they already have it. They already know it. Humble yourself. Be a learner in 2020. Posture your heart like Jesus was. Listen. Ask questions. Be hungry to grow. Don't imagine you've already grown. Keep growing. So it goes on to say this. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is a 12-year-old boy, friends. A 12-year-old boy. They've searched for Jesus. They came back looking for Jesus. They couldn't find him. They probably checked all the shawarma shops in town. They probably went to the local gaming area. Is he playing Call of Duty? He's a 12-year-old boy. But, but no, he's sitting with the greatest minds of that day. And they are astounded. They don't even know who he is. He's a 12-year-old boy going through puberty from a region where his accent would have betrayed him that was more seen as the, the hick part of, of that area. He wasn't fine the, from the refined and cultured areas. And here he is sitting in a circle with them, and they're astounded. Here's what happens. His parents didn't know what to think. <laughs> so guess who gets to him first? Mom. I can imagine the scene this way. Jesus is meeting with all those religious leaders over there. Mary and Joseph come into the temple. They notice him while mom is outpacing dad. Dad's already falling behind. I mean, he's concerned, but he's not that concerned. But mom, she's got that combination of anger scared. You ever seen that? If you're a parent, you know that feeling, anger scared, like, oh, my baby. Oh, I want to throttle you. You know that kind of scared thing? She beelines it over to Jesus. She's the first one to the party. And she says, son, why have you done this to us? It's dripping with emotion. It's dripping with disappointment. It's dripping with frustration. And I love how she, she says this, your father and I. Moms have used that for centuries. You wait until your father gets home. Your father and I, why? Because when moms are dealing with sons, they kind of want to amp up the heat. And they say, you know, especially as, you know, we began to get bigger than my mom. My mom's 5'2". So she comes up about here on me. And we got bigger than her. Man, she threw the father card down quite a bit. Now, although, uh, to be honest, we were more scared of her than dad. <laughs> uh, your father and I, and she's doing something that many moms have done through the centuries. She's amping it up. Joseph's still in the background. Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. Goes on to say, but you did not need to search. This is Jesus speaking. But why did you need to search? He asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? You know, 
Notice Mary says, your father and I. And she points to Joseph. And Jesus says, my father. And he points to God. What is happening in this moment is seismic. It's kind of lost on us as Canadians, as modern people in this ancient culture. This was a significant moment. I wonder if Mary locked eyes with Joseph in that moment, as sometimes married couples can do. I wondered if she looked at him and said, do you think he knows? And Joseph is starting to nod, and he goes, he knows. He knows. This is my father, your father. He is now citing. He gets it. We think Jesus was omniscient from birth. There's no evidence of that in Scripture. He grew into the understanding of this because when he left his home in heaven, it says in Scripture that he limited it, his godly attributes. So he grew up as a human, just like you and I did, but without sin. And in this moment, it comes to him. He knows who he is, and he knows what he's going to do. And it says in verse 50, but they didn't understand what he meant. They didn't understand what he meant. Isn't it interesting? The people who didn't know him best, they were amazed by him. The people who knew him best were disappointed. The people who didn't know him best, the religious leaders, they were amazed at his abilities. They were confounded by it. The people who knew him best were disappointed and confounded. They didn't understand what was going on, what's happening in this moment. I think it's fascinating when you look at this and you need to remember, even as you journey with God in 2020, there will be moments where you are forced to decide, will I disappoint God or will I disappoint these people? Will I disappoint God or will I disappoint my boyfriend or my girlfriend? If you have to choose, disappoint your boyfriend, disappoint your girlfriend. Do I disappoint God or do I disappoint my boss? If you have to choose friend, Disappoint your boss. God, in this moment, and in 2020, you're going to have moments where you're asked to say things, do things, give things, and it will confound some of the people in your life. Why would you forgive that person? Why wouldn't you do this? Why aren't you doing that? And they don't understand, and sometimes they're even disappointed. Why would you give? Why would you... And you're forced to make a decision. All I know is, if in your life, all the people you do life with are completely comfortable with what Jesus does in your life, then you're probably doing it wrong. Because Jesus stirs the pot wherever he goes. See, I I think of it this way. In our culture, if you're really comfortable, be careful. Because a follower of Jesus should learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in our culture. Because while the culture goes this way, we're going that way. While the culture says, you go, go get him, cancel him, you're saying, I'm going to turn my other cheek. It's crazy. While the culture is feeding a narcissistic need in us for attention, we're serving other people around us. It's a countercultural way of living. And Jesus is doing life, and he's with his family. 
But he disappoints him in this moment because he is saying in this moment, my family connection to God transcends my connection to even my earthly family. Now, some of you come from cultures that will understand this. Many of you who are born in Canada will not fully understand this. But in that culture, family loyalty was the most paramount thing. You did not bring shame on your family. You did not bring any sort of brokenness into your family. It was about protecting the family loyalty. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, before you, mom and dad, God, it's a big moment. You know what I love about it too? Because it wouldn't have been lost on the religious leaders. When he said, my father, in Judaism, you didn't relate to God as your father. You can find a couple of accounts in the Old Testament, but it was for the nation, never for the individual. When he said, my father, he is talking about personally identifying in a familial connection with the creator of the universe. Who do you think you are, Jesus? He knows who he is now. But isn't it interesting when he became an adult, he would teach his followers to pray, your father, your father who art in heaven. What's he saying? You get the same connection. You have the same connection. You've been adopted in, you've been grafted in. Your family relationship with God goes deep and it's ancient. It's beautiful. It's beautiful what he teaches us here. When Jesus says to Mary and Joseph, and Mary says, well, how could you do this to your father and I? And he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? He's basically saying, listen, I understand now. I don't need to obey you anymore. Why? Because I'm older than you. He's the only 12-year-old that was older than his parents. He's the ancient of days. He spoke the world into existence. But isn't it interesting in verse 51, it goes on to say this, then he returned to Nazareth with them and obeyed and was obedient to them. This is beautiful. He was voluntarily obedient to them. I, this is Jesus, so free. He takes his freedom to serve the people in his life. Paul would talk to the, about this in the church in Galatia and he's talking to Christians and he'd say, like, don't take your freedom to flaunt it. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. It's incredible. You think you'd take your freedom to do what? To, well, I'm free. I'm no longer under the law. And he says, no, you're free now to serve. You're free to love. You're free to be sacrificial. And then we come to the linchpin verse. I'd love you to say it out loud. If you got your notes, circle this verse. This is the linchpin verse for the teaching today. And it's simply Luke 2.52. Let's say it together. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. It speaks to time, process, intentional routines. 29 years, Jesus lives in obscurity. Three years, he stands on the stage. We're in a culture that wants to be on the stage all the time. And the moment we feel overlooked, underappreciated, or missed, we start clamoring for our phones. We start clamoring for those moments. Jesus knows what it means to sweat it out in the intentional routines for the public ministry that would follow him. The 29 years he spent there. Now, when it says he grew in these things, it says he grew in wisdom. Now, wisdom is not knowledge accumulation. You know that. It's never been easier to have a lot of knowledge in our culture. 
In fact, there are a lot of intelligent people, but if your intelligence outpaces your wisdom, you'll inevitably be foolish. That's why there's a lot of intelligent fools walking around this planet right now. Never had more knowledge, but wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is seeing relationships and life through the lens of God. The way he sees it, through the lens of eternity, changes everything. If you want to live a wise life, you fear God. By fearing God means you order God in your decisions and the way you see people and life and the things and your resources. It's all through the lens of God. And Jesus grew in wisdom. It also says he grew in stature. Now, this wasn't talking about his height, although that would seem to be obvious if he's 12 years old and he becomes a 30-year-old man, he probably put a few inches on. But it's not talking actually about his height. He's talking about the way people perceived him. The stature, he grew in stature in the way that he became, moved from being a boy to a man. And the people in his life saw that. It kind of feels obvious in the text. But the more I thought about it, I thought, do we need to hear that? There are men who still act like boys. Just because you can grow a beard and drive a car doesn't make you a man. There are women that still act like girls. Just because you can hold a professional job down and dress for success, it doesn't make you a woman. There's a big difference between childishness and adulthood, and certainly in a biblical context, but in life, right? Friends, a, a child is undependable. You don't, you don't bank on a child, but an adult is reliable. That's how we know, okay. I'm starting to build in stature. I'm, I'm becoming a reliable person. And that's something other people see in you. A child is selfish. An adult is sacrificial. It's not about me. I'm serving the people that God's placed in my life. A, a child makes excuses. An adult is accountable. That's on me. That's on me. A child is demanding. An adult is patient. Now, none of us are perfect adults, are we? Some of us are better adults in certain areas than we are in other areas. A child throws a fit when they don't get their way. An adult has self-control. And the idea is when he's growing in stature, the people in his life saw that he was a man. He was reliable. He was accountable. He was dependable. He was faithful. Now, we will never be perfect. But that's a transition we need to monitor. Then it says this, he grew in favor with God. Now, this is a little perplexing when you first read this because you can think that favor with God is built by pleasing God in this way, that you do everything God asks you to do. And so many of us get caught up in a religious kind of race where we're trying to do all the right things and then we feel like we have favor with God and then God has to bless us, right? But that's not at all what it's saying here. Here's the reality. Grace is so powerful, and don't lose sight of this word, or you'll lean into works before you know it. You'll be trying to work out your salvation, check all the right boxes, try to clean yourself up, try to behave in such a way, become even more religious. Why? So that you can grow in favor with God, and you're missing the point altogether. Grace is unmerited favor. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you already have his favor on your life. But I don't behave well. I know, I know. It's not about perfection in this moment. It's like this. I raised a couple of kids. They learned to read. Some of your parents, 
Do you remember when your children learned to read? Was that a good thing? Oh, it is good, friends. It's really good to know how to read. But they learned how to read. I didn't love, it pleased me that they could read, but I didn't love them more because they could read. Oh, when they learned to drive, it pleased me that they were able to do that and independent and they learned another life skill that pleased me. It didn't make me love them more. It was not based on, the, uh, on that, what, but what, why it pleased me and I grew, they grew in favor with me as I saw them maturing and growing. Don't be the type of Christian that gets stuck and you're stuck on a grace wheel where you have received God's forgiveness but you haven't entered into the maturation process which is lived out one day at a time with intentional routines. Here's the last one. And he grew in favor with others. Now, this seems like it's popularity, but you gotta remember, Luke 2.52, he has no following. Nobody, he's not teaching. He's still in Nazareth at this moment. And it's acknowledging that he grew in favor with others. It's not talking about the amount of people who knew him. It's saying that the people who were with him, they knew him. We hide all the time, but he was known to them, and they respected him. Uh, they looked at him, and they were blessed by him being there. It'd be an interesting question to ask ourselves as we go into 2020. Do my, am I growing in favor with my neighbors? Am I growing in favor with my work colleagues? Am I growing in favor with my family? Because that's that respecting piece that helps us to be like Jesus. Now, how does this all happen? Well, I, I didn't bring it. I thought about bringing it, but I have this piece of wood that I have brought to every house we've ever lived in. And I started this when the boys were really small. And I would kind of just, I remember, it's like starts out way down here. And I'd, top of their head, I'd t do a mark and I'd date it. And every year I'd do a mark and I'd date it. And every year, and now it's like up here. And here's the interesting thing. I can't see, I can't, I didn't notice when my boys were growing. Like at, at the end of the week, Shelly and I were not looking at each other and going, man, my, they've grown. You don't notice it. It's so incremental. It's so small. It's so insignificant. But over time, it produces something incredible. Intentional routines are just like that. You don't notice the effect two days in. You notice the effect as you build these patterns and disciplines in your life over time. They transform you. They change you. You know, remember that old adage we shared it a few years ago. First you form your habits and your habits form you. We shared the adage from John Maxwell that, that many of us have uphill aspirations with downhill habits. And that's why we need inspirational moments and we rely on them, hoping they'll do what we're not prepared to do. Intentional routines are a game changer. And the hardest thing is we have very little patience for them in our culture. So when I say be like Jesus, I mean it. For 29 years, he lived one single day at a time. Who noticed? The right people noticed. And it built for him a public ministry that would transform and change this world. Now, I'm like you. Daily habits are not always easy. So I shared one, one of these things with you earlier this summer, but I'm going to re recap it because I want you to think about this this week. This is your homework, whether you're online or in this room. In your Jesus Project book, you can write this down. I'm going to show you, my wife Shelly and I, we, a few years ago, we were going through a moment in our life where we were struggling 
And we came up with, we called it like a daily declaration. And to this day, we say it to each other all the time. Or I'll text it to her at work when I know she's struggling or having a tough day or I'm dropping her off at six in the morning and it's going to be a long day and I'll see you at 11 at night. And there's a little text like, hey, let's remember this. And this is really important. So this is the declaration we wrote. You don't have to do this declaration. But this was because we have some holes. We have some vulnerabilities in our life. And we needed to shore them up. And so we say this all the time to each other. No regrets, no worries, God is good. Here's why we say them. No regrets. That's probably more for me. I have a tendency to pitch a tent in my past. I have regrets. I wish I had done things differently sometimes in my parenting my boys. I have regrets because I wish I had not done certain things. I wish I had done these things. And I have a melancholy streak in me that I have to monitor. And I know this, I have a tendency to build a tent in my past and live with all the regrets. And you know what? Not one of them will help me move forward. There are no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I live one day at a time from this day forward. I can't go back, so I have to remind myself daily. I do this every day. No regrets, Jonathan. No regrets. It also helps me to live my day better because I want to live in a way that I don't accumulate more regrets. You know what I mean? And then I say no worries. Not because I don't think tough things are going to happen and that I'm not going to worry, but I say no worries to remind myself that no matter what I encounter in 2020, God will be with me and he will resource me. He will help me get through it. So I remind myself when it's tough, hey, no worries. Now that's easier said than done. The last one, God is good. Because guys, I forget it when things are bad. I feel like he's forgotten me. I feel like I know you're good intellectually, but are you good? So I remind myself all every day, no regrets, no worries, God is good. Whatever your declaration is going to do, build it around where you're at in this life. If you're at a place where you're wondering, does God have someone for me or is there a future? You need to maybe daily remind me, God has a plan. God has a plan. Maybe that's part of your daily declaration. Maybe if you're in a place in a season of great need in your life and you remember, and you need to remind yourself that God is able, God is able, God is able. God is able to provide. Whatever it is, you build a little declaration that you can anchor on and it becomes a habit and a routine and it builds something great moving forward. There's a little Bible verse my granny McKnight taught me years ago. And I I actually like the version from the NIV that says this, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And that's a verse that I've kept by my desk for years. Why? Because I need to be, and you need to find a verse. Find a verse for 2020. Something you can just recite and memorize and anchor to your heart and mind. Joyful in hope. Why? Because I need to remind myself all the time, I live in the light of eternity, not this moment. I am living for the hope that is set before me. And then patient in affliction because when I'm going through it, I want out of it quick. And if I'm not careful, I'll take shortcuts, sin shortcuts to get out of it instead of being patient in the affliction. But, but, but to keep on praying, because sometimes, you, you know, you stop. I need to keep that relationship connected with God. So I have a daily declaration. I have this daily verse, but I also have daily habits. I'm going to give you only two of them because you don't need to know I brush my teeth. 
I hope you do too. But, but here are two daily habits. One I d- I've done for years. One I added the last number of years that have been so helpful. This first one is one I added. Ask for wisdom. I just came to a point in my life where I realized I lead a lot of people and I'm in a lot of situations. And you know what? You've ever felt like you're in over your head sometimes? I need wisdom. Wisdom to deal with relationships. Wisdom to have the right conversations. Wisdom not to do things. Wisdom to know when to do things. So I love that Jesus' half-brother James said this, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Wisdom. Ask for wisdom this year every day. God, give me wisdom at work today. God, give me wisdom when I'm talking to my family today. God, may give me wisdom in this parenting situation. God, give me wisdom in this conflict. God, give me wisdom in this business transaction. Ask for his wisdom. Invite it into your need. And then here's the one I've used for years. Ask for forgiveness. Man, there's such a conflict that goes on side of each of us. And we're not perfect people in this room. If you're looking for a perfect church, you're going to need to keep looking if you're new here. Because we're not perfect people, none of us. And we need daily doses of grace. So I come to Jesus and I ask him every day, God, forgive me. Because I know there are probably some things and attitudes and thoughts that I've entertained or acted on that are counter your kingdom. And sometimes if you're like me, Sometimes it's not even something I'm even conscious of. But the people around me have seen it. You know what I like? For me, it's just like keeping things clean between me and God as a priority. If I keep that clean, I hear his voice. If I keep that clean, I have his will. And I want that so much. I don't want anything to become between God, me, and my Father. Let's pray. Well, God... I thank you for your son, Jesus. I think we as a community at the start of this new year, the start of this Jesus project, I think we can all say that we are so thankful for Jesus. Lord, I am thankful for Luke in the pages of scripture there that help reveal him to us. And I pray, I pray for every one of us in this room and online, I pray, God, that you would be our savior and redeemer and restorer, that you would make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. And I pray in 2020, we would grab hold of the fact that you're also our example. Help us to live a life like you lived. We're not gonna be perfect in it. So help us to come for that grace that will sustain us in it. God, we want to look more and more like your son, Jesus, with each passing day of 2020. We give you this year. We give you our lives. And we say, Jesus, lead us on. In your name, amen, amen, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.